Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. And now let us continue our worship as we read our first scripture reading from Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. Second scripture reading day comes from Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 22. The scripture begins, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, You shall fear the Lord your God. Him alone you shall worship. To him you shall hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. Who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen? Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
So today, we come to the final sermon in our Conversations sermon series. And for those of you who have been here before for the finales of my other sermon series, you know that I always like to end with something a little bit special. And today, we are hearing excerpts from Beethoven's Ninth. We're going to hear it a little bit more in a while. Why we're hearing that will become clear later on in the sermon. But for now, I want to focus on what made this particular sermon series, this conversation sermon series, so unique that we were doing that made it different from everything that we've done up to this point. So as you all know, if you've been here and you've seen what we've done through conversations, it's that you all laid the foundation of these sermons. We came to you and we asked you, what do you think about a certain topic? And many of you went down into our film studio and you gave us your thoughts on these things. And so each week we watched a pre-taped conversation between you all. And I have to say that what made this series so beautiful is how you all were willing to share so much of yourselves with us. We captured on film some really authentic and genuine moments where you all were willing to be vulnerable, and that is a difficult thing to do. I mean, politicians, they like to be in front of a camera, right? But I mean, you guys, getting in front of a camera, not easy to do. It's not easy to share yourself in that way. And so I want to say thank you to every single one of you who gave of yourselves, who gave of your time to tell us your thoughts. I also want to say thank you to Brian Larson. Brian actually was the one who had to film all of those things, and if it wasn't for him, we couldn't have done it. I also want to say thank you to Mary Fino, who is our senior administrative assistant. Without her, we couldn't have scheduled all of this, and if you all were trying to get scheduled for this, it could be hard at times. And putting this together was a lot of work, because to edit all of these together, it took a lot of time, but it was totally worthwhile. And at the end of the service today, as you leave, there's a DVD that you can pick up on your way out that has all 14 of the conversations that we filmed and we put on screen. And so if you want to, you can pick one up. You can see the ones that you missed. You can see the ones that you really enjoy. But I hope you'll take one home with you today. For our final sermon in our conversation series, we are talking about our church. And by that, I don't simply mean the church universal or the Presbyterian church as a denomination. I'm talking about our church, First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. And today, we are dealing with the future of our church in a particularly painful way through the dissolution of a pastoral call. We are doing this after much study and prayer because we felt that in order to be the best stewards of the money that you have given us, we need to make this decision, unfortunately, in order to right our financial ship, to make us financially solvent for years to come down the road. And so today, this sermon is about where do we go from here? How do we move forward? Who do we want to be, and how will we get there? And to begin this, I want to start with what you all have to say, asking you the question, where do you see the future of our church? Let's watch and see what you all had to say. Oh, anyway, I say it's going to sound terrible, <laughs> so just scratch that. <laughs> what worries you about the future of the Church Universal? You know, my thoughts about the Church Universal, a lot of it's informed by the church I grew up in, which is now a vacant lot. Um, you know, when I grew up, it was uh, started, my grandmother was actually one of the founding members, and she met my grandfather there. Um, but over time, the demographics of the area changed, and the church didn't really find a way to care for the people mm -hmm. who were coming into the area. Mm -hmm. Did a good job of always focusing on caring for the members of the church, 
but didn't find a way to make that pivot. And over time, the membership just dwindled to the point where the church couldn't sustain itself. The cultural stigma that I think is forming. Um, now, in the news a lot, you hear a lot of things, negative things about Muslims and things like that. And um, it makes me nervous that there's a bad stigma forming around religion in general. I think it is a, a poor decision to ignore the fact that this country was founded by people of faith simply because they did not want to mandate that as um, something for each citizen doesn't mean that it's not important and doesn't mean that they did not want it to be involved in everyone's life or in the vast majority of people's life. I don't think there's really anything in its uh, coming up in its place that is as nurturing and as satisfying and as fulfilling and uh, it causes me a, a, a considerable amount of concern. What do you think we need to change to keep our church strong and vibrant? People don't go to church anymore just to go to church. They need some other reason. And so I think one of the aspects of First Press that, that we need to focus on is giving them something more than just, it's a place to go Sunday morning because that's not cutting it anymore. I like the word you use, connect and connection. I think that's the key, both on a local scale and a global scale, is how do we connect and connect the Christian faith to what's relevant to people in their daily lives, whether it's teens and youth and talking about uh, topics that are relevant for them or the global community and what's relevant to Christianity today and, yeah. and connecting. Um, I think it's intimidating when people bring up religion in terms of um, I'm better than you or I have, I'm closer to God than you because I consider myself a Christian. Um, but I think it's important that we obviously not do that, but that we also show that we don't do that and we just you know, love each other, we're kind to each other, we respect each other. I think people are afraid that if we're that open, that people will get the idea that everything's okay and we don't know which way to go anymore, that the church is going to fall apart, but I think it's just the opposite. I think that the more we love and the more diverse we get and the more we gather people in, the bigger community will have, the safer people will feel, and the better it will be for everyone. What do you think we need to continue doing to keep our church strong and vibrant? Since I've started here, the, you know, the services are kind of very well done. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of thoughtful programs that are very well run. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's the, the tough part is to keep those things going but not be you know, but also be willing to make the changes we need to to adapt to new mm -hmm. audiences and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that the church as a whole, um, and specifically this one, is very, very welcoming. Um, I think that continuing to just say like, hey, if you want to come to church, whether you come once or you decide to start coming regularly, like you can feel like you can come here, like no matter who you are. I think I, I immediately felt welcome. And I immediately felt like these are these are good people I'm surrounded by. We need to keep being as welcoming as we are, if not more, um, because I love how people always bring friends um, and extended family to come to church with them. Like you said, with mm -hmm. youth group, there's so many people that are in our youth group now that were not raised in the church like most of us. They came along either in middle school or in high school, um, brought as friends, and on their own decided to continue coming. And I think that's an awesome thing because that's how the church stays vibrant and continues to grow. 
Where do you see First Pres in five years? In the business world yeah. that I deal in, uh, you know, the long-range planning like that is becoming less and less vogue, and because things are changing so, so fast, it's absolutely. more about, you know, how do you experiment efficiently, figure out what works, and then pivot where you need to. Mm -hmm. I think First Press is getting younger, and I think that's, um, I see us continuing down that path, that that's important um, to, for a number of reasons, certainly to continue to uh, bring new energy into the church. I think that that's very important and new ideas. Well, I think in five years, our mission is going to be in full swing. And I think that's going to be um, a big change for our church in a very positive way. The people who do walk through the doors can, can see that this is a place where there's, that, that there's, there's a goal, there's, there's, there's a purpose and there's a mission. And if they're excited about that, uh, we'll get some nice steady growth without overextending and not being able to do a, a service or being able to follow through on, on, on what we're promising. I don't see that we've changed a lot in the last five years. So I think it depends on how we open ourselves to Alex's message. Mm -hmm. I think it's all going to turn on whether we have the courage to do it. How can we become a closer community that lives up to Jesus' expectations? I mean, there are people that I think that are down on their luck or they may feel depressed and it's important that they always know that they are welcome here and that you know this is a place where they can come and talk through problems. It's very hard I think to live into what Jesus wants us to be. I don't know how it is for other people. It's hard for me. My first re my first reaction is to pull in and to say I don't have the energy to do that. I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the skill set that's needed to do that, instead of saying, okay, Lord, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to be? We already remind everyone that, that wherever they are in, in, in life and, and whoever they are in this, 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 this congregation, that they, they have a gift and they, they can contribute. This at least is a place that should be and can be a safe place to ask larger questions that may not necessarily be safe in other, other places. The world is changing around us. The future will certainly be much different. Um, so I think it's important that we keep that open minds um, and be ready for those changes, whether it's um, you know, a liberal change or a conservative change. It doesn't really matter as long as we're ready for it and we're flexible and we're able to embrace changes like that. The thing to keep in mind always is sort of the sort of the North Star of Christ's teachings. And if you're constantly trying to, you know, steer the ship in that direction, mm -hmm. even if you might get blown mm -hmm. off course or right. something might not work, you know, that's what's sort of key that's the key yeah. to the whole thing. Probably one of my most vivid memories from when I went to church when I was a child is walking into our sanctuary. Our sanctuary was built sometime prior to the Civil War, and it hadn't really changed that much since it was built during the Civil War. They'd updated, you know, the candles with some electric lights, and they put in some new carpet, did a paint job here or there, but pretty much it was exactly the same as it was. And, you know, there was a little bit of comfort to that. 
knowing that no matter how the world is changing around us, that you can walk into this place and it can be a safe haven for us in the middle of a really turbulent world. And I want to acknowledge that about this place. I know that for many of you, this place has been a rock in your lives. For many of you in here, this place has a soft spot in your heart because you grew up here. Many of you have been here with your families, sometimes for generations. And so very much this congregation feels like a part of who you are. And I think that's why we can guard the traditions of the church so closely sometimes. Because if we lose touch with those traditions, we feel as though we're literally losing a part of ourselves. It's tantamount to losing a limb. We'd never be the same. But if we hold on too tightly to the traditions of the church, then we run the risk of becoming obsolete, and the world may pass us by. And it's this constant struggle, isn't it? I mean, you all know what I'm talking about. How do we hold on to the best of who we are while adapting to an ever-changing world? And the truth is, most churches cannot maintain this balancing act. They just can't do it. And you heard Eric Allen's church is a perfect example of this. So in the church he grew up in, right, what did he say? I thought that was so interesting. He talked about how they were so good at caring for the people inside of their walls, but then when the community changed around them, they could not pivot, they could not change quickly enough. And this church, which was founded by his grandmother, is now a vacant lot. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we prevent this from happening to us? What do we need to do to ensure that First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights remains an important and relevant fixture in this community for years to come? Well, I think one of the first things we need to do is we need to focus on the things we do well, right? Would you agree with that? Yes? So one of the things that we do well, and you heard people talk about that, is that we're very welcoming in this congregation. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. So I think that's true. I think you all are very welcoming. And I love what Miranda said, how she talked about how you all want to bring your family and your friends to this place, that you love this place so much that you want them to experience the joy that you feel walking into this sanctuary each Sunday. But I think we also have to be honest and say that there is a little bit of a limit to that hospitality. In truth, we are most welcoming to the people who are like us. I mean, just look around this room for a second, if you don't mind. I mean, we all look like each other, right? We live like each other. We probably mostly think like each other. So we can talk a big game about inclusivity, but the question is, can we actually do it? And I want to focus on something that Nancy Pardo said in the video. She talked about how when you really think about this idea of opening up, of allowing everybody in, of doing what Jesus says, you love everybody, that that's actually kind of scary, isn't it? Because when you open up, all of a sudden, you make yourself vulnerable. It can feel like a weakness. But as she talked about it, she said, you know, actually the inverse is true. Paradoxically, the more open you are, the more you love other people, the more you actually create a safe environment where people can come in and feel they are accepted for who they are without judgment. And this is the philosophy that drove the early church. This is why we read from Paul's letter to the Galatians. So what Paul is doing in this letter is quite simple. He's basically sitting there and saying, hey guys, look, the church is different from the world that you live in. 
The world that you live in, it's defined by labels, right? Everything we do in the world, there's a label for it. So, you know, you're male, you're female, you're black, you're white, you're rich, you're poor, you're American, you're Canadian. Like, Canadian's the worst label you can have, by the way, out of all of those, <laughs> by a long shot. But in the church, in the church, those, those labels are supposed to dissolve away, right? And that's when Paul, if you read the letter to Galatians, it's like he's going through all this stuff and, and the logic barely makes any sense and then you come to this moment. And in that moment, at the very end of chapter 3, he says, for there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That is what the church is all about. That is the church at its best. When every soul who comes through your door is embraced and welcomed as a member of your family. That's the model. That's what we're striving for. That's the North Star of Christ's teachings, as Eric Allen said. I really like the way you put that. So what we're aiming for, our goal, is to create a community where everybody who walks through our doors, they can use their gifts, whatever those gifts might be, for the creation of God's kingdom. Is that what we're aiming for? Yes, it is, indeed. How do we get there? How do we make that happen? Well, I think I need to be upfront with you and say, it's not going to happen by us sitting in the pews on Sunday morning. Like I said earlier, there is nothing wrong with traditions, particularly traditions like Sunday morning worship and doing that well. But if you listen to what Brian Tharp said in the video, what did he say? He said, people don't just come to church anymore because they want to come to church. You have to give them a reason. And so if we continue to do what we have always done, which is to assume that our Sunday morning worship is going to be the magnet that draws people to our church and through our doors, then we will eventually be closing our doors just like Eric Allen's church did. The churches that are going to survive in the 21st century are the churches that are willing to toss out the manual of what they've done before. It's the churches that are willing to reach outside of their comfort zone to try something new. They're willing to get rid of the old habits. They're willing to embrace new ideas. And most importantly, they're willing to take risks. And they're willing to try things that might fail. And it is here that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony can be most instructive to us in discerning a way forward. I'd now like to invite Adam Henderson up. He's going to be singing for you the baritone solo of the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This solo is the introduction to the choral aspect of the symphony. Oh,
schöne Götter von den Tochter aus Elysium. Wir betreten feuertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Deine Zauber binden wieder, was die Mutter streng geteilt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder, wo dein sanfte Flügel weint. I was going to sing it for you, but, you know, I thought it'd be better to let him go. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was first performed on May 7th, 1824, in Vienna, Austria. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is universally considered to be Beethoven's greatest composition, and it is arguably the most important piece of classical music that has ever been written. Never before had a composer combined the human voice with a symphonic work, let alone a full chorus. But to help you understand why this hadn't happened up until that point, I need to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of music history to put context into the circumstances of how Beethoven was writing his symphony. You see, composers like Beethoven, back in the 1700s, 1800s, they were held to very strict standards. There were rules that you had to follow when you were writing your symphony. You couldn't just do whatever it was that you wanted to do. Now, Beethoven first had this idea of combining a symphony with human voices when he was 22 years old. And he got this idea when he had seen Frederick Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy, and he thought, Maybe I'd like to set some music to that. And so over the years, he'd write little bits here and there, and it would take another 30 years for this seed that he got when he was 22 to come to fruition. Now, for the first three movements of this symphony, he followed the rules that had been laid out for him with exquisite perfection. Indeed, many Music historians argue that that is the most perfect rendition of those rules that have ever been written. But then, in the fourth movement, beginning with the baritone solo that you heard Adam sing, he breaks from those rules. Now, I know all of you know German, so you probably could understand what he was saying. <laughs> but let me translate it for you just in case you didn't. And it's wonderful the way what it says. So he starts off by saying, Oh, friends, not these sounds. Let us instead strike up more pleasing and more joyful ones. In other words, no more of the old way of doing things. Let's try something completely new, something that has never been done before. And after what you heard from Adam, it leads into the chorus that you all know so well. The first time that it was performed, Beethoven's Ninth, the audience was so enraptured by what he was doing that they were actually clapping in the middle of the sections. And if you know anything about classical music, the etiquette is you always wait until the end. And they couldn't wait. They just loved it so much. And when it was all over, when it was all over, they were all on their feet, and they were clapping. And Beethoven, who was deaf, he couldn't even hear this. And he was actually conducting. He was alongside another conductor. And he just wanted to be up there being part of it. But he hadn't even realized that they were done, like they had finished, because he was a few measures behind. 
And so they turned him around to face the audience, and there he could see them clapping. He couldn't hear them. But everybody in that audience, they looked at each other and they thought to themselves, why didn't we do this before? Well, the reason why is because only Beethoven was brave enough to take a chance and break the rules. Well, for the last 500 years, there have been rules in place for how you are supposed to do church. And the rules, they go something like this. You're probably familiar with them. So you get a group of like-minded people together. You find a leader who espouses your particular version of Christianity. Then all those people, they put in some money and they erect a building. And then magically, people just start to fill in your pews. The better the preaching from the pulpit, the more heavenly the music from your choir, the more people are going to seek out your community and want to be part of what you're doing. Now, of course, the rules for this are very clear in the sense that there's an assumption underlying them. And the fundamental assumption is that people actually want to be in a church. Is that Jesus calling over there? <laughs> That's the fundamental assumption. And, of course, based on those rules, the whole, the whole way it's supposed to work is, as long as you are the best option, then everybody's going to choose your church over all the other options that they have. But in the world we live in today, those rules no longer apply. I think more often than not, people are not just making a passive choice not to go to church, they are making an active choice in today's world that they are not going to be part of a church community. And you know how we know this here? Because we have people come in from outside our community, visitors. We have people who come in and say, we really like what you're doing here. And indeed, I really believe that in terms of Sunday worship service, if you're going for a mainline church, we do it better than just about anybody around here. And yet even we are struggling with retention and consistency in our Sunday services. Now I knew that this would be an issue coming in. I knew that. And so you all remember, I laid out a vision for our church. And at the time, that vision made a lot of logical sense to me. So we start off by creating these relationships with each other, deep relationships with each other, and we form deep relationship with God. And then we take that relationship out into the community, and we serve the poor. We serve those who are in need. And then we care for those inside of our walls who are struggling and suffering right now. And I still stand by that vision in the sense that those are things that we need to be doing. Indeed, these are things that all churches need to be doing. But my mistake was assuming that that would be enough. My mistake was that I was still playing by the rules that founded this church 150 years ago. And what I have come to realize over the last three years is we can't play by those rules anymore. We have to start thinking completely differently than we have in the past. We have to start getting creative and imagining entirely new and innovative ways of doing this thing we call church. We have to be willing to break the rules and strive for something new that hasn't been done before. If you're wondering, what are you talking about, let me give you an example. Let's take this sermon that I am preaching right now. So the sermon, the sermon, has been the central focus of Protestant worship for the better part of 500 years. Agree? Agree. Okay. Now, there's a rule that you all have to follow, though, 
and you're doing the rule right now, you're very good at it, which is you have to be willing to sit there and listen to me talk for 23 minutes, right? And you all abide by that rule generally. Not many people get up and leave in the middle of my sermon. So you all do abide by that rule. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is that even though I work really hard on my sermons, I work really hard to make them interesting, I do a lot of research so that I try not to waste your time, even though I do that, I've been coming to realize that less and less are people willing to come and hear somebody speak at them for 23 minutes, even if it's good. And so I've been wondering, <clears throat> is the sermon <clears throat> an outmoded form of communication in the 21st century? Is there a better way of communicating God's love than a one-way monologue every Sunday? And I say that, by the way, as somebody who believes that one of his gifts happens to be the traditional sermon. Or let's take this building that we're in. This is a beautiful building. I feel honored and privileged that we worship here. But you all follow a rule in being in this place. And that rule is, is that you all believe that coming to a church building is essential to your spiritual well-being. You want to be here because you believe that having an experience of God involves coming to this place. But less and less are people willing to come to a church building to have an experience of God. And why would they? When you can experience God walking through nature, or you can experience God sitting at home reading a Bible, why do you need to come here? And so I've been wondering, if the people won't come to us, are we willing to get up out of the pews and go to the people? Are we willing to take what we believe about God, this God that we experience in this worship every Sunday, are we willing to take it out to them? The God we read about in Deuteronomy, the God who loves the orphan and the widow, the God who welcomes the stranger and the oppressed, are we willing to bring those people in to our lives? Are we willing to go to them and accept them for who they are and expect nothing in return? You see, the challenge of this new world that we live in right now is that the burden of proof has shifted. When most of you in this room were growing up in here, the burden of proof was on the individual because religion was infused in the culture. And so every individual it was incumbent upon them to define their own spiritual reality. If you were non-religious, you were an outsider. But today, the burden of proof has changed. It's no longer on the non-religious, it's on us. And if we're not willing to get up and get out of the pews and go talk to people and tell them why being in this place is essential to their well-being, then we will succumb to the same fate as every other mainline church in America. I want to end this morning by repeating something that Nancy Pardo said. She said that this all turns on whether or not we have the courage to be different. Can we change? Can we be different than we are right now? Can we do what Eric Allen said? Can we experiment? Can we try things? Can we do things that might ultimately fail? Because the truth is, we can't just keep doing what we've always been doing and assume that it's going to be okay. Because it's not. And evidence for that is the fact that we have to have this congregational meeting following worship today. I believe very strongly that this church has a lot of potential to do wonderful, amazing things for God. But we have to be willing to break the rules. 
I'm preaching this sermon for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to tell you this, that over the next year, I'm going to be working very closely with the leadership of this church. And we're going to be coming up with new ideas, innovative ideas. Ideas that are going to push the envelope of what you are used to in a church. But my hope is that when you see these ideas in action, just like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you'll sit there and say to yourself, ah, why didn't we do that before? I believe that God's Spirit is active and thriving in this church. May we have the faith to follow where the Spirit leads. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.